it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So that would be, what, noon to 3 out here on the West Coast. We are broadcasting from the Hoover Institution this week at Stanford University, Palo Alto, California. We are so happy to be here, and we are so happy to have you on board with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can follow us online. You can get content there. You can listen to the podcast if you miss any part of the show as it airs live. And that podcast is always on demand. It is always free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're on social media, many of you are, you can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter, at GuyBensonShow is our handle there. We've got a lot to get to here on the program. Here are the guests today. Dr. Abbas Milani will join us in studio here in a few minutes. He is Stanford's foremost expert on Iran. We've had him on the show before. I had lunch with him a few years ago, and he's just a fascinating guy who knows so much. And given what's happening in the streets of that country right now, I would say a real threat, I don't know about a mortal threat, we'll see, to that regime. I will be fascinated to hear the thoughts of Dr. Milani coming up this hour. In the next hour, Shelby Steele, another Hoover Institution fellow, he'll be joining us on race-related issues. He is a deep thinker on those questions, race relations, affirmative action. Big Supreme Court case on that coming up this term. Critical race theory and schools. We will ask Shelby Steele about all of that and more. That's in our next hour. And then Josh Krasauer, our weekly check-in with Josh as we get closer and closer to the midterm elections on November the 8th inside five weeks. I mean, it is right around the corner, and there's a lot to talk about, some developments in Senate races. The Cook Political Report just shifted a critical race into the toss-up category, which is a good sign for Republicans, but also a potential scandal breaking loose in another key Senate race. We'll address all of that coming up on the show later today. You won't want to miss any of it. As we begin I gave this short shrift yesterday, and I promised that we would get back to it, and so we want to keep that promise here. On Friday's program in D.C., Bill Malugin was in studio with us. He was in D.C. He's normally at the border. Sometimes he's quote-unquote home in L.A. He seems to live at the border. But Fox brought him to D.C. with a camera crew to go and try to get comment from leaders, elected officials, especially Democrats, to get them on the record reacting to the border crisis. Because a lot of them are just sort of averting their eyes, right? They are kind of maybe side-eyeing the situation from a great distance, not wanting to talk about it very much. They can occasionally weigh in to slam a Republican governor for doing something that they don't like, but they don't really have any solutions. And they are supporting the crisis by virtue 
of their basically unvarnished support for the people responsible in the Biden administration. Right? If you are not lifting a finger even to criticize what's happening and grapple with the reality of what's going on down there, you are, as an elected official, I think, complicit in what's happening and the humanitarian and national sovereignty and security disaster unfolding at the border that we talk about a lot here because, number one, it really does bother me. Even as someone who's, who's not traditionally been a border hawk, as I've said, it bothers me. And then what bothers me further is the fact that so few people in the media are willing to talk about it. Whereas there was so much attention paid to a much smaller crisis under Trump and Democratic politicians going down there for photo opportunities, the media talking about kids in cages and secret footage and all this stuff, protesters outside the House of cabinet secretaries, you know, with bullhorns and chanting and all that sort of thing. And then we have the worst border crisis in modern American history by far. And people can only bring themselves to talk about it if the excuse is or the hook is that they get to trash Ron DeSantis for the Martha's Vineyard maneuver. Or Greg Abbott, for example, what he's been doing in Texas. But Malugin has been covering it faithfully. We have, too. And it's almost like because so many others are derelict, I think for ideological political reasons, I feel an obligation to talk about it even more, sort of to compensate for the silence. I thought silence was violence, by the way. I guess certain silence is okay. Strategic silence, so long as it helps your party. And to be clear, most journalists are Democrats who either openly or sort of subconsciously root for the tribe, and tribalism, by the way, gets even more intense right before an election, right? It's easy to sort of be critical and maybe pay some lip service to even-handedness in an off year, but when people are going to the polls very soon and power is at stake, then I think the tribal instincts really start to kick in. And that's true of partisans, and unfortunately, many people in our journalist class are partisans. White House attacking Belugin for doing his job. We talked about that. We got Bill's reaction to that on Friday. There was also this news that broke just this week that we just glanced upon yesterday, which is that in fiscal year 2022 that just ended, there were 599,000 known gotaways. 600,000, right? Because that's, that's a rough estimate. It's not exactly 599,000. It's a rough estimate. So let's just call it shorthand 600,000. 600,000 known gotaways at the southern border. People who were detected on cameras or motion sensors, and we didn't have the wherewithal or personnel to go get them. Because a lot of our people are tied up processing the other millions of people that have been encountered and processed, and many of them released into the country. Because that's their ticket in their minds to enter the country illegally. That's what they've learned from the Biden administration. Come in, claim asylum, get the process to go through, get a little piece of paper saying, oh, yeah, show up nine months from now in court. Many of them don't. And then you're released and sometimes bust or flown to the city of your choice at taxpayer expense, which is human trafficking if a Republican does it, apparently, but not as the Biden has been doing The Biden administration has been doing it for the better part of two years. 
the known gotaways is that other category of people who didn't want to get caught, didn't want to get processed. Think about the number of gang members, convicted felons, suspected terrorists that have been in the apprehended category. How many more are in the gotaway category? where they have a really strong incentive not to get encountered by U.S. officials and to slip into the country, in this case, detected but not caught. Then there's the group of people who aren't detected but get in here illegally as well. So you add up the 600,000 from this year, 600,000 gotaways that we know of in one year. Like, don't let these numbers just go past you with your eyes glazed over. 600 thousand known gotaways on top of the millions of people caught many of them then released into the country last fiscal year there were almost 400,000 known gotaways so a huge jump 390,000 was a shocking number then you go up to almost 600,000 you add those numbers up and it's 989,000 plus since Biden took office roughly speaking If you then just factor in, I would say, a fraction of the unknown gotaways, you are absolutely at a million people. A million. A million who got into this country without getting stopped illegally. A million on this team's watch. And they have the audacity to tell us over and over again that the border is secure and Amazingly, I've made this point before, you have some people on the left arguing that because there have been, this year, for example, more than 2 million apprehensions at the border, that proves that it's secure. Look at all the fentanyl that they're getting at the border. If it were open, none of that would be caught. And I'll make the point again. I will not claim that the borders are completely open. Clearly, we are interdicting people and drugs, and weapons at the border every day. So it's not completely open. It's not closed. Sure as hell not closed. And it is clearly not secure. What a joke. This is what they tell us. The man in charge of this, ultimately, by the way, is the president, and the border czar. Don't want to forget about her. It's easy to sometimes. But the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, just goes on television very occasionally, shows up on Capitol Hill, goes under oath and says, oh, yes, the border's secure. So back to Bill Malugin, the reason he was in D.C. and he teased it last week was he was putting a microphone in the face of Democrats. He actually went to Mayorkas's house because they scrubbed the, they didn't put his schedule up. Malugin tried to go through the front door, basically saying, hey, I'm going to be in D.C. I'd love an interview with the DHS secretary. No response, but in a very unusual move, all of a sudden, the secretary's public schedule was not posted, almost as if they were avoiding Bill Malugin, desperately avoiding him in his questions. So he went to, Mal- to Mayorkas' house and asked some questions. He also asked some other Democrats questions. Here's just a taste of what some of those confrontations sounded like. It's a little tough to hear some of it, and, and I'll try to fill in some of the blanks, but here's cut 11. 250,000 unaccompanied migrant children arrived at the border since President Biden took office. Some of them traffic, some of them drowning in the river. Any issue with that? Last question. Ma'am, is the border secure? Do you agree with the administration that the border is secure? We'll let you go. Chairman, one question. In your opinion, is the border secure? I have to go give a speech. Didn't you hear me? I heard you. Okay. It's a quick question. Is the border secure? 
Answers about the border few and far between from some Democrats on Capitol Hill, including the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. I'm Bill Malugin with Fox News. Do you have a few moments to talk about the border real quick? I'm, I'm sorry, I don't. A week before this, we sent this email to DHS, notifying them we would be in D.C., and we were requesting an interview with the secretary. We received no response, so we went to him. A few moments of your time is all we're asking for, and we'll let you go. Reached out to your office, asked to talk to you last week. They, they blew us off. I appreciate it's, it. It's 900,000 Godaways. Have a good day. Thank you. No comment, sir. So the first two parts of that clip that you heard were Democrats on Capitol Hill just stonewalling, no answer. It's a pretty straightforward question. Is the border secure? The Democratic official line is yes. Hey, there's what almost a million gotaways. Is that secure? Nothing. Benny Thompson, who I think is the chairman of January 6th committee, he got ornery. I have to give a speech. Didn't you hear me? You can get to your speech. It's a one-word answer. Is the border secure, yes or no? No answer. He just glared at him and got in the car. Mayorkas sees Malugin at his house. I mean, he's out not on private property. He's like, oh, I know who this guy is. No comment. I don't have time. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you. And yet the story continues from this team from this administration, the border secure. Between four and five million illegal crossings in less than two years. (laughs) And yet this is what they tell us. And apparently, if we talk too much about it, that's sort of racist and xenophobic. Never mind the fact that you have illegal immigrants dying on a regular basis down there at the border. The sex trafficking... The abuse of women and girls, it's awful. But, no, I guess it's an unhelpful thing to talk about. And so many people just don't. And we're not going to be a party to that here. We're just not. Now, this is also playing into the governor's race down in Texas. I want to talk a bit about that contest when we come back. A soundbite I want you to hear, plus sort of a very disturbing development involving an attack on Abbott supporters, another violent attack. Those details coming up. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. And we all agree that we want the border to be better. In fact, I think the border is pretty great right now. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was the voice of Beto O'Rourke back in June. He's running for governor of Texas. In fact, I should just call him Robert Francis O'Rourke. That's his real name. He goes by Beto for some reason. But he is again running for another office down there. Looks like he's going to lose. He's down 7 to 11 points I've seen in most of the polling. In June, he said that he thinks, quote, the border is pretty great right now. The previous month, May, was the single worst month of the entire crisis, which has been elevated and historically bad. There were close to a quarter million encounters at the southern border in May. The next month, Beto's like, I think it's actually pretty great down there. Should be better, but 
It's pretty great. His words. Just amazing. That was a very quick clip that was shopped around by Republicans, so maybe there's some more context there. The problem is for Beto is he seems to flip-flop and change his mind on a lot of things and try to pretend that he never said any number of things that he has once they become politically problematic for him. For example, on confiscating guns. Right When he ran for president, he said, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15s. Then that became a problem for him running for governor of Texas. And he's like, oh, no, I've, I'm not talking about taking anything from anyone. Well, except you did in a nationally televised presidential debate, sir. We have the clip. He's trying to do the same two-step on defund the police. Where he said, oh, I'm not for that. I've never been for that. No one's for that. Except he applauded the city council of Minneapolis voting to abolish the police department in that city. And I guess this, the, the hope of Beto O'Rourke is that people don't have access to videos of him saying things. So now he's talking a little bit tougher on the border. Remember, he pretended like he was critical of Joe Biden on the border crisis. But in June, he was saying the border was pretty great in the teeth of the crisis, like the worst month. I just don't think the guy really believes in much of anything other than his transcendent ability to run for office. And how he's just, you know, what was it? I was born to do this. I was born to, born for this. I was made for this. Well, voters seem to disagree over and over again. I think they're going to do the same coming up in November. He's running against Greg Abbott, who's the incumbent Republican, who should win easily, right? He should. You never know. Take nothing for granted. I mean, under these circumstances, you'd think Abbott could or maybe should win by double digits. But there is this story, very disturbing. This is from a local news outlet in San Antonio. Quoting now, a man attacked two Texans for Greg Abbott volunteers while they were knocking on doors in the neighborhood. The incident happened on Saturday. The suspect allegedly chased the volunteers through the neighborhood and attempted to drag them out of their car. He also punched both side mirrors off the vehicle. So this is some serious rage. They found the guy. They've arrested him. This comes on the heels of a pro-life 84-year-old volunteer getting shot while she was canvassing in Michigan. The bombing of pro-life pregnancy centers. That teenager getting mowed down and killed in North Dakota, apparently over a political dispute. This is political violence. And I know the civility and rhetoric police are often out in full force when it's going one direction, weirdly, eerily silent in the other direction. It's The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free every day. And here with me in studio is Dr. Abbas Milani. He's a research fellow and co-director of the Iran Democracy Project here at the Hoover Institution. He's also 
the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University, which is where Hoover is located. He's an expert on everything related to Iran, U.S.-Iranian relations, and it is great to see you again and have you back on the show. It's a pleasure being with you. So let's just start with the obvious question. What is happening in the streets of Iran right now? What precipitated it, and is this time different from previous protest movements against the regime? Uh, I think it is different. Uh, It's different by how long it has gone on. Now it's over two weeks. It is different by the sense that it was led by women and uh, has been essentially led by women for the cause of women, women fighting against misogyny, women fighting against gender apartheid, women fighting against forced hijab, and women fighting for the fact that uh, regime thugs uh, killed a woman in their custody, a woman called uh, Mahsa Amini, whose name has now become global. Uh, And it's unique in the sense that uh, there have been so many different layers of Iranian society, from women to students to now school, high school students, who are saying enough is enough, we don't want clerical despotism, we want a free democratic Iran. We've seen the pushback from the regime which is familiar at this point, intimidation, people being snatched off the streets, people being jailed, flogged, even killed. Is the level of barbarity in reaction to this similar to the past? Because it seems like they haven't really cracked down fully yet. Are you fearing that that's the next step here? I think that's absolutely my fear, and I think this regime is very capable of that level of brutality. They showed one sign of it two days ago, where before Khamenei gave his talk, a few hours before Khamenei gave the first talk he had given after 16 days of silence, they attacked uh, the top engineering school in Iran, Danshka Sharif it is called. It is often said to be the MIT of Iran. Uh, The thugs closed the doors to the university and attacked the students inside, several hundred students, with batons, with tear gas, uh, with uh, uh, bullets that uh, hasn't killed anybody, but many have been injured, many have been taken to the hospital, many have been uh, uh, imprisoned. Uh, They were serving notice, precisely as you suggest, Mm. that we are brutal enough to attack the top university and close the doors and beat these university students so that the rest of you know that we are capable of any barbarity to keep this barbaric medieval regime in power. Before I ask another question about this, I just want to do a quick detour because you just mentioned Hamani, who's the supreme leader. He's you know, the, the head guy in charge of Iran, the top cleric, Ayatollah, whatever you want to call him. There have been rumors now percolating for a while that he's very ill. And I, what have you heard from your sources in Iran, and what could the significance be surrounding that? If, if he were to die sometime in the near future, is it just the next evil person up, nothing really changes? What are your thoughts there? Well, the, he's clearly ill, uh, and uh, when he gave his talk, you could see that his face is very puffed up. Uh, the earlier talk he gave was also very weak. He clearly was weak. Uh, so he is sick, but uh, clerics in Iran tend to live longer lives than the average uh, because they live a life of comfort. They haven't day, done a day's work. So their average life expectancy of a cleric 
with the kind of cancer that Khamenei has is longer than normal human beings. Uh, but uh, Khamenei has been very much trying to see whether he can get his son, a, a guy named Mushtaba, who has never held office and has been a de facto chief of staff and has been in charge of the most brutal elements of Iran's intelligence agencies mm. to succeed him. There's pushback societally, and there's pushback from the clergy who say this young ki kid is not good enough to become a su successor. I have serious doubts that this regime can last. Uh, not in the short term. They still have the brutality to maybe contain this. But they have no problems to Iran's fundamental problem. They have no solution to the rising movement of discontent fueled by women, fueled by uh, young people who are very globally savvy, who simply want to live normal lives. You can't have a medieval regime of septuagenarian men run a society as vibrant, as youthful, as educated as Iran. That's simple. Unless you're willing to kill a lot of people, which they are. And that's why I think what we're seeing is so inspiring. I mean, every time the people rise up, the Green Revolution, you think about that, what, more than a decade ago now, and there have been a few other sporadic exactly. moments where people have risen up, then they get brutally put down, then they try again, which is incredible. I know we, in this, in the West, sort of in a sort of decadent way, we prattle on endlessly about courage and truth to power. This is actually a, a real vivid example of that under very trying circumstances. If you would just explain, I, I think a lot of people in the audience are sophisticated enough to understand that if a woman takes off her, her head covering in Iran and shows her hair or cuts her hair and, and parades out in public this way, she is taking a risk. She is doing something that could put herself at, at real risk. But if you could just really explain what that act of defiance really means in the context of this regime, I think that would be worthwhile. That's a brilliant question. That act of defiance means going against the word of Khamenei, who is on record, saying that hijab is God's law and we are going to enforce it. And the head of Iranian judiciary just three weeks ago saying if you take off your uh, hijab, you are, the concept you use is muharib. In other words, fighting against God. The punishment for that is death. That's how they threaten people in Iran. That's how brilliant and defiant Iranian women have been. They have fought for literally 40 years against this brutality, against this apartheid. And but not this openly, right? This is Absolutely. brazen. Absolutely. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have never seen anything like this in the sense of people coming and uh, starting a bonfire and yeah. throwing I have seen people, uh, when I taught in Iran till 87, you could see this a woman fighting for every inch of a hair that could show. But this level of defiance, absolutely not. There's one other aspect of this movement that I think has uh, received almost no attention, much to my surprise, in the Western media. Last Saturday, in 150 different cities around the world, hundreds of thousands of Iranians came out to show solidarity with the movement inside Iran, and to say no to this regime. I know of no movement. The movement Like it. the di diaspora? The Iranian diaspora. Around the world. Around 150 cities. 
in Toronto, there were 50,000 people. Wow. In I barely heard about this. It is a shame of the Western media. I can tell you, it is a shame that they haven't covered this. There is no social movement that has been able to bring so many people with absolute discipline, not a single incident. In some places, in San Francisco, we had 16,000 people. Wow. Los Angeles, 50,000 people. London, Paris, uh, Asia, not a word in Wall Street Journal, in New York Times. Why? I absolutely don't know. I, I'm, you know, in, in Iran, everyone has conspiracy theories. I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but it is a shame of this media. Some people have tried in the media to bring attention to it. Uh, some of your colleagues have tried to bring attention to it, but the print media has been eerily silent. Mm. The Especially in a, in an era, sorry to to cut in, uh, but in an era where everyone is doing activism on their phones and posting things on social media and tweeting and Instagram. People do this on all sorts of causes, and yet this one seems to just not really be breaking through, even though it's a very clear-cut example of good and bad, human rights and oppressor, and, and strangely it's just kind of muted. It's very muted, and many of the, you know, many of the activists who rightfully fought for women's rights uh, have been silent. I'm yeah. glad to see a number of uh, academicians, uh, Professor Butler and a number of others have signed a letter. There should be a national outcry. Mm -hmm. There should be a national movement to defend the best university, the MIT of Iran. Imagine if this happened in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The MIT of Iran, the doors would be shut. MIT doesn't have doors, but if they did, the doors would be shut and Thugs would be sent in to beat on any student and use gas. No, their students in this country are microaggressed by everything, right? Like, you know, you use the wrong pronoun by accident. It's a huge scandal. But this is actual government thugs showing up and, and beating and shooting people. And it's sort of collectively shrugged at here. I will tell you, now that I'm thinking about it, at my alma mater at Northwestern University, there's a tradition called painting the rock where you paint this large rock different colors. And the students there did paint the Iranian flag in solidarity with the women yeah. and, and students in Iran. I saw that on my feed maybe last week or the week before. So some people are paying attention. Yeah. A lot of people aren't. I wonder, do you think ultimately, because often tyrannical authoritarian regimes are fearful of their own people. And I wonder, do you think that this regime is maybe more afraid than ever? I, I think so, absolutely. The, you know, uh, Khamenei, in this talk that he just gave, he referred to Mahsa Amini, the woman who was killed in police custody, but was afraid to mention her name. He said, this young woman who has been, uh, who has passed away, mm. her name has become so powerful that he literally did not dare mention her name once. And passed away. What a euphemism. Exactly. That, that sentence was, a young woman has passed away, and we, the royal we, mm. are, of course, brokenhearted. Oh, sure. 
uh, your forces have killed and you're not brokenhearted because the night before your thugs went in after the best and brightest of Iran. Maryam Mirzakhani, the winner of a no, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in mathematics, a professor at Stanford University, got her degree at that university. That those are the people who are beaten, being beaten up. The mm. future Maryam Mirzakhani's. What can America and what can Americans do? Because no one wants to go to war with Iran, um, but you also want to root for these people who are trying to liberate themselves. In your mind, you know, for Americans who are sitting here frustrated, feeling sort of powerless and not really sure how American power should or should not be wielded here, what would your message be on that? Well, my message is that every American citizen who loves democracy, who is interested in women's rights, who's interested in a secular, law-abiding government in Iran, should support this movement. Uh, Citizen diplomacy, speaking on behalf of these people, asking academic institutions, asking companies to support this movement. For the U.S. government, I think it too has a role. But the U.S. government cannot, should not determine the future of Iran. But the U.S. government at this moment, where the regime is brutally attacking its people, should not release any funds to this regime. Yeah, I mean, you would think that that would be obvious. I saw, I think the Biden people put out some sort of statement uh, against the brutality and the crackdown, which is fine, except they keep sending them billions of dollars, and they're currently still negotiating with the Iranian regime through the Russians to try to give them even more sanctions relief. It, I, I, I fail to see how that could be anything other than deeply demoralizing to the people in Iran who are fighting this regime and the United States is actively enriching the regime? The, the, uh, the United States government has denied that they have still given, uh, given them any money. Uh, the, but the Iranian regime says they're expecting to get $7 billion for the release of one of the hostages. And absolutely, the, uh, the Biden administration continues to negotiate with these guys. And Iranian regime keeps putting this out in the media, that the U.S. administration keeps contacting us to continue these negotiations. These are heartbreakers for the people who are in Iran who think, just as they're fighting this regime, the United States government, I commend them for their words of support, but the idea of releasing these funds to these people at this moment is bad policy, bad politics, amoral, and profoundly against U.S. interests. Yep. It's, uh, to me, it's unconscionable. I think they're just fixated on this obsession with a nuclear deal at all costs, even though we're seeing like the world is changing and, and they're stuck in 2009 or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's hard to watch, but it's also very exciting to see what the people are doing, these young people and women in particular in Iran. Dr. Abbas Milani, He's a research fellow and co-director of the Iran Democracy Project here at the Hoover Institution. He also directs the Iranian Studies Program at Stanford. Doctor, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. As always, a pleasure talking with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks. We'll break. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. I don't know if you saw this, but Trevor Noah announced he's leaving The Daily Show. I think 
the vast majority of the audience has gone away on that show since John Stewart left and Trevor Noah's has been plugging away, I guess, over there. I haven't watched it in years. But he announced he's leaving. I'm, as I usually say, a gut-felt guy. I'm going to watch late-night humor. But I guess now that he's leaving, they can be funny. They did a mashup. People talk about Kamala Harris, our vice president, like it's a constant rolling episode of Veep. So they put together the mashup that needed to be made. It's so well done. Cut 27. My fellow Americans, words have many meanings, and sometimes instead of conveying our meaning, they can suggest other meanings. When we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. Well, we are the United States of America because we are united. And we are states. Um, Talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time. Whatever we have in store cannot be known. The past was once the future. The future is, I should say, unknown. We gotta take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to have to take it seriously. Obesity is a serious disease, and it needs to be taken seriously. You need to get to go, and need to be able to get where you need to go to do the work and get home. I hope that clarifies the issue, and this can be the last word on those words. Certain issues are just settled. Clearly we're not. No, that's right, and that's why I do believe that we are living Sadly, in um, real unsettled times. Perfect. It's, it's so good. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who plays Selena Meyer, in these clips where she's clearly struggling to get through, she's got this look of slight panic on her face, like, what am I going to say? What's the next word? And it is really reminiscent of an actual real-life vice president. That's good stuff. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show coming to you live from the West Coast. And Stanford University, the Hoover Institution, our home for the week here. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow rising again today, big time, 825 points, back over 30,000 at the close to 30,316. Now, I was planning to do this segment on the Pennsylvania Senate race. There's some sound I wanted to play. I wanted to get into the race a little bit here. But let's just hold that thought. We'll talk a little bit about it with Josh uh, Josh Crossauer coming up in the next hour. But even better, tomorrow we will talk to Dr. Oz, the Republican nominee in that race. He'll be our guest on the show here tomorrow. So mark that down. And that's not all. Also on the show tomorrow, Carl Rove, the architect, will be back here. Looking forward to picking his brain about the midterms. Oh, and by the way, Dr. Condoleezza Rice, our guest in studio here at the Hoover Institution on foreign policy and maybe a little football as well. So Condi in the house tomorrow. So just just that little heads up on the 
the lineup for you tomorrow. Rove, Oz, Rice. How about that? Meanwhile, I do want to mention this. Tucker Carlson tonight is airing part one of an interview with Tony Bobolinsky. Remember that character's name? From the 2020 election cycle who went on the record with a bunch of allegations regarding Hunter Biden, his business dealings, and more importantly, Joe Biden's connection to it, Joe Biden's involvement and knowledge of what was going on. And Bobolinsky was basically completely ignored by everyone. That was back when the respectable arbiters of truth were telling us, or at least supposedly respectable, supposed arbiters of quote-unquote truth, were telling us that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation and a big lie to be ignored. Well, Bobolinsky, it's not like he's gone away. It's not like his evidence and his testimony has changed. So I guess Tucker has caught up with Mr. Bobolinsky on a host of issues, and he's talking about sort of the media blackout. Here's just a clip, a little preview of what you'll see tonight in part of this interview on Tucker, 8 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel, Cut 21. I've had a variety of people reach out to me, but nobody that was willing to actually go through a detailed interview of the facts. And, um, you know, Jake Tapper, I guess well-respected by many people at CNN, um, you know, I appeal to him and Chris Lick. I'll come for an interview. We'll spend an hour. You can be as aggressive as you want to be with me. You can call me a liar. You can, you know, attack the facts. The good news is it's just not my word against the Bidens. I have thousands of documents text messages, WhatsApp conversations, recordings of the sitting president of the United States in his own voice. And uh, I'd love to have that debate. So, And you offered that? Uh, I'm available. Yeah, I, I mean, I've said, well, I've had people reach out to me and I've said, you know, listen, what's the, uh, you know, they just want something. They want something for a news cycle or this going. And um, so uh, uh, I have not um, done that. I've been laying low. Um, but uh, I'm offering that now, uh, you know. So you would go on CNN and speak at yeah. whatever length they'd like I about would, uh, your experience. I would go on uh, Jake Tapper tonight. So that is Tony Bobolinsky. Much more of that exchange with Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox News Channel in the 8 p.m. hour Eastern time. And I know some people just roll their eyes. Oh, it's just this old, it's this old controversy that the right wing's trying to dig up. No, I think it is pretty clear that the president of the United States was actively dishonest about his involvement in or at least knowledge of his son's foreign business dealings, which he completely categorically denied, which seems provably false at this point. And someone who had inside information and dealt not just with Hunter, but with the big guy, Tony Bobolinsky has these materials. He's willing to have the conversation. There's just been in a lot of quarters a very pointed lack of interest for some strange reason. And I guess the idea here is to, we're getting close to a midterm election. Is there a willingness to buck the tribe and seek the truth and ask tough questions, of course, this close to an election? They wouldn't do it in 2020 because you had to get rid of Trump. Well, okay, he's gone. This is just a midterm. What about now? I guess we'll see that interview airing later tonight, part one. Also, this happened minutes ago at the White House. Corinne Jean-Pierre, oh, bless her heart, back out there, doing her best. And our colleague Peter Ducey asked a question, and we've sort of talked about the premise of this question on the show. Here's how it went down. It's gas prices. We're, we're back to gas prices. Cut 31. Thanks, Corinne. You've said the president was responsible for gas prices coming down. 
Is the president responsible for gas prices going up? So it's a lot more nuance than that, right? Um, Peter, you know this. Uh, there have been global challenges that we have all have de dealt with. When I say all, meaning other countries as well have dealt with since the pandemic. There's been pandemic and there's been uh, Putin's war. And Putin's war uh, has uh, increased gas prices at the pump. We have seen that over the past several months. And what the president was able to do, uh, he took some historic steps when you think about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and making sure that he, we were able to do everything that we can to bring that cost down uh, for American families, give them a little bit more of a breathing room. And we saw that. We saw that every day this summer uh, over a, uh, saving American families over a dollar per gallon. And so that is what the president is going to continue to stay focused on, our cons American uh -huh. consumers. How do we continue uh, to, keep, uh, to keep prices down? That's why we, we did the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. That's why we yeah. talk about the CHIPS Act. All of these things are going to help Americans here. Amazing. So they were, like, congratulating themselves on gas prices falling, even though they were still way up from when he took over. And that was Joe Biden's doing. Look at the achievement here. All the other stuff when it was going up, 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 crushing families, well, that was Putin. That was greed from the oil companies. And then they come down. Look at what Biden's doing. Now they're going back up. Is it his fault? Oh, no, no. It's much more nuanced than that now, of course. It's back to Putin. It's back to the greed and all the other talking points. It's so transparent. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. Here's a story that I want to talk about perhaps a bit later on with Josh Krasauer. But I debated whether or not to give it oxygen, whether or not to delve into it myself here. And I feel like ultimately I owe it to you to talk about it because we've had the candidate here on the air. I've talked about how important this race is. I'll be going to Georgia next week and broadcasting from our affiliate down there, Extra, in Atlanta, the Herschel Walker controversy that blew up yesterday the daily beast has a story alleging that in 2009 herschel walker paid for his girlfriend's abortion and they say that they saw a receipt they can confirm several hundred dollars i think seven hundred dollars paid by him to her he sent her a card around that same time sort of like a sympathy card a get well card and that is the allegation and obviously, as the pro-life candidate in the race, this is an issue, this claim. Now, let me just say at the outset, I don't know if this is true. Walker is adamantly denying it. He suggested last night that he was going to sue the Daily Beast. Now, today, it looks like his lawyers are walking that back. Maybe they're not going to sue. I don't know what the truth is. I will say this, and I want to be careful. My suspicion, and again, this is just me trying to be intellectually honest. My suspicion is that it is true and that he is not being truthful about this. I could be wrong. This could be a whole big smear job and the receipt is fake and the $700 payment was for something else. And he doesn't deny making the payment, but he said he gives money to people for all different reasons because he's a generous guy. He gave an interview last night on Hannity about this. 
There's also a series of tweets from his son, Christian Walker, who's sort of this MAGA social media influencer, just torching his dad. And it looks like there's a lot of baggage and familial issues at play there that apparently have been sort of burning those embers for quite some time. And now it's all out in the open, a lot of dirty laundry, whether you believe it's true or not. Now, if it's untrue and this didn't happen, I could understand the move of saying absolutely not, categorical denial, start musing about lawsuits. If it is true, right? if this did happen, I think there'd be a number of ways to respond that would be better than denial. And I could get into that. I'm not really sure if it's helpful to talk about different hypothetical ways you could have responded to this because I don't know what the truth is. And obviously he's responded the way that he has. But you could talk about how people can change and their hearts can change. This is well over a decade ago. How perhaps this incident forced him to think more deeply in a personal way about the issue and he came to a different position on it. You could also point out that if this happened... Herschel Walker, and this is something obviously as a pro-lifer that I'm disturbed by, he could say, yes, I think this was a mistake. I look back on it with regret. She also wanted this. It was her choice. I did pay for it. It's something that has haunted me. And this is part of the political process where people try to harm you with deeply personal things. I will say that while I did do this, what my opponent, Raphael Warnock, wants to do is force all Americans, to pay for abortions with their tax dollars. That is the position of Raphael Warnock, a very unpopular stance. Warnock, a pastor, is completely pro-abortion for any reason at any point of pregnancy, paid for by taxpayers, on-demand, elective abortions, up to the moment of birth. That is the position of Raphael Warnock. The position of Herschel Walker would be different, and the fact that he might have had some problems in his past or might be a hypocrite, that's certainly part of the conversation. Also, when it comes down to votes, especially not for president, but in the U.S. Senate or in the House, you're talking about one of 100 or one of 435, and it's about math. It's about who controls the floor, who controls what gets voted on, who's in the majority, right? who runs the committees. This stuff is consequential. Now, does that mean you completely throw values and personal character out the window when you're making a voting choice? No. Does it affect people's calculations differently? I think it does. And we've seen the political parties and their bases go all in to support some pretty awful people through the years because that's what it takes to achieve and maintain power. It's like, well, we don't have a perfect team here. We need the numbers. So I don't want to sit here and tell you that I think this is true and Herschel's lying. If I had to guess based on some of the other stuff, and there was this rumor, by the way, for the last year plus. I had heard about this, that this was at least something that might come out, that this is, I guess, how they prepared for it as an October quasi-surprise. I'm not terribly impressed because it looks like they're kind of flailing about it, I'll just underscore, I don't know what is real. But 
at least from where I sit based on this story, it doesn't seem like a completely baseless, made-up thing. And I see some people out there who are basically declaring the race effectively over because of it. It's like, oh, well, he's the pro-life Republican. He paid for an abortion, allegedly. He says it's not true. People are going to draw their conclusions, and now he can't win. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. There have been a number of races, especially in the last, let's say, decade, where I thought revelations that came out late would be fatal to the candidacy of the various people involved, Republicans and Democrats. One of them, by the way, being Raphael Warnock in 2020 in his Senate run. The oppo on that guy, the domestic incident with his wife on the police cam talking about what a great actor he is, but he's actually a terrible guy. When the police were called to the house, some of the child care disputes that I recall involving him, the alleged covering up of some sort of sexual abuse at a summer camp he was running, his church, him being present at the church when they were doing a big rally for Fidel Castro, a communist dictator. I mean, the oppo book that dropped on Warnock two years ago was dramatic. All that stuff is still true, by the way, about that guy. Plus, now we've got the voting record of Raphael Warnock in Georgia. But I thought at the time, I don't think Warnock is electable in the state of Georgia, given everything that we now know. And now, guess what? He's a U.S. senator. Donald Trump, you just kiss. You just grab them by the bleep. Remember that? October surprise, Access Hollywood tape. A lot of people thought Trump was cooked at that point. Then he became president. I'm not saying this is necessarily great that these bad things come out and no one cares and people get elected anyway. But it's also, I think, part of the reality of American politics right now. A lot of people are willing to overlook some very serious stuff and baggage. Now, if the wave gets big enough for Republicans, I think Walker absolutely could still win this thing. There's a chance we'll look back and say, yeah, it was super close and ultimately this hurt him just enough. That's what the Democrats are hoping, certainly. They can't claim to be offended by the abortion, given their position on it. But they're going to call hypocrisy, which is fair enough. The sun coming out and saying what he said on social, I think, really adds another layer of ugliness to this. Where maybe some number of Georgia voters just say, it's just too much. And if it's one of these down-to-the-wire races in Georgia, like we see now so often... In recent years, that could be a decisive factor. I'm just not willing to come here as a political analyst and give you a confident prediction one way or the other about whether this is going to be determinative. I can tell you how I feel about it, what my general instincts are about it, but I'm not sure how it's going to play out. And I guarantee you there's pollsters in the field right now. The polls might show a big shift or not. I don't know. And then would that impact have lasting power through November 8th to the point that it would ultimately shift enough votes to decide the election? I'm also not confident about that. So it's sort of a cold take from me on a red-hot controversy in one of the most important Senate races in the country. I didn't want to shy away from it, not talk about it, avert my eyes, hope that it goes away. I wanted to tell you exactly what I feel, including a lot of the uncertainty 
that I'm feeling about it. Because I think that's what honest commentary is, and that's what I try to do on this show every day. We'll ask Josh Krausauer in the next hour about it, how he feels this is going to play. I don't know. Those are hard words for a pundit to say we're supposed to know. Hot takes. Certitude. A lot of I don't know on this one. And with that, we'll break. We'll come right back. Shelby Steele is here, a Hoover Institution senior fellow on affirmative action, on race. Some really interesting news hooks for this conversation next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past the midway point here on the Tuesday edition of the Guy Benson Show from Palo Alto, California and Stanford University. It's the Hoover Institution. We are very excited to be here all week long. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge every day on demand when the show is over slightly after 6 p.m. Eastern time. And joining us now is Shelby Steele, the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He specializes in the study of race relations, multiculturalism, and affirmative action. He has written widely on race in America and its impact on society and the consequences of contemporary social programs on race relations. He's the author of multiple best-selling books, including his bestseller, White Guilt. And Shelby, it's good to have you here. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I would love to start with this question for you. It pertains to a Senate race that we've talked a lot about, including today, down in Georgia, where Herschel Walker is the Republican nominee in that state. And he's got some new issues today involving personal stuff that we've talked about. But just a few days ago, the New York Times published a story. Many people noted it was by a white reporter. They went down there and basically wrote a piece that Herschel Walker was not authentically part of the black community. And they quoted black people saying that, and they had white people defending Herschel. And I just wonder how you see that template from the media and a major outlet essentially telegraphing to voters the inauthenticity of a black person's blackness because of politics. Yeah, well, it's, it's sad to begin with uh, as, as a context that we're still playing this kind of a game uh, with our politics. Um, of course, uh, we have, uh, you know, politics has its ugly side, and uh, it's, this is certainly nothing new. Uh, but it was sad to see, uh, see it break out in this way. I think Herschel Walker is a fine man. Uh, and to see uh, people have to pay this price when they were simply because they want to run make a contribution, run for office, practice politics. Uh, there's nothing good in it, nothing to be, to be, uh, to be recovered uh, when all this is over. You've written, as I mentioned in your intro, quite a lot about affirmative action. And as you're aware, there's a big case coming up this term at the Supreme Court on racial preferences and related issues in higher ed, on college campuses, in admissions and this sort of thing. And Basically, you have a lot of the progressive left, or at least self-proclaimed progressives, arguing passionately that the Supreme Court must uphold racial discrimination because it's a good kind of racial discrimination in their minds. And other people are saying, no, it's flagrantly unconstitutional. It's time to put an end to this and to stop codified racial discrimination in this country that is harming 
for example, Asian Americans. It's just interesting to see in the year 2022, not only are we still talking about this, you have people on the side, at least in their minds of justice, saying, no, sort of discrimination here is necessary. It must continue. And the Supreme Court, they're, they're sort of saber rattling again that if the Supreme Court takes the other view of it, and I think takes the correct constitutional view of it, they will be, again, putting at risk the legitimacy of the institution of the Supreme Court. How do you view this upcoming case and sort of the discourse around it? Well, I've argued against affirmative action since it was first uh, conceived back in the 60s and 70s. What bothers me, I I think the the corruption of it is in that word must. We must do this in order to have equality and so forth. My primary objection to affirmative action is its profound, insistent uh, belief in the inferiority of black Americans. It is, it is, a, it is committed to, the, to a view of them as inferiors who will never be competitive with other races. Uh, and so it's the most virulent kind of racism one can imagine uh, because it it sort of blows you a kiss even as it humiliates you. Uh, And so that to to begin with, before we get into all the machinations of the Supreme Court and what they'll do with this decision and so forth, uh, uh, it's just on this fundamental, it is the race problem in America, this idea that that now we, we redeem our racist past by doing racism all over again in the name of the good is once again leaves blacks uh, in this position where they can't prove themselves. That option is taken away from them. They can't freely compete. They can't establish their their, their true uh, equality of uh, men among men. They can't do those things because America is so guilty it wants to uh, use racism all over again and and really oppress them all over again. It breaks my heart to see, um, I've been in universities all my life, to see young blacks generation after generation come come through the universities in, in this way, and this, I call them the M&M tract, the minority mediocrity tract, uh, where they're, they're at the bottom of every academic department they're in. They have the highest dropout rate, the lowest grade point average of any group, student group in America. Uh, and this bothers no one. We, we, what we do is just, is just uh, ignore that uh, and, and move on. The, the, the real problem that we in black America have, and it's understandable, you go through four centuries of oppression, you're going to come out of it underdeveloped. You're not going to be immediately competitive. Nevertheless, as, as, uh, uh, as, as difficult as that may be to absorb, uh, it's, it's the, that's reality. We are either competitive with others or we're not. And there's, there's no way to, to sort of cover that up and get around it. Uh, and it, it breaks my heart to see us uh, um, go along and fight for affirmative action as though we were fighting for justice. Affirmative action is, again, injustice, perpetrated in, a, in an entirely different way, different, different mask of, of benevolence. But it's, it's, uh, it's an exploitation and an oppression 
to blacks again all over again. And uh, uh, so I, I'm not sure what the court will do this time around. Uh, it will be academically interesting to see them sort of play badminton with the issue. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's of no relevance. Uh, we as blacks have to overcome our underdevelopment and become competitive. I will point out that a number of public polls have shown, and we've highlighted this through the years recently, that majorities of every single racial group in the country believe that skin color and race should not be a factor in college admissions. I know that is sort of seen as a hate crime in elite circles. Anyone, it's you know, very, very bad, dangerous thinking, but it's what a majority of every single racial group in the country believes from Pew and, and other numbers that I've seen. I think that's just an interesting coda to this part of our conversation. Meanwhile, Shelby, I do want to ask you about this. Vice President Harris gave some remarks this week talking about a number of different issues, including hurricane relief, and she was focusing on the need for equity, which is one of the buzz phrases that they've used lately. When it comes to hurricane relief, there are some people saying that she was actually talking about other issues, but then she was asked to clarify, and we haven't really gotten anything from her. Here's what she said during that lengthy series of answers. This is the vice president a few days ago in Cut 29. It is our um, lowest income communities and our communities of color that are most impacted by these extreme conditions and and impacted by by issues that are not of their own making. And I'm so women. we... Absolutely. And so we have to address this in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we, we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity, understanding not everyone starts out at the same place. And if we want people to be in an equal place, sometimes we have to take into account those disparities. Okay, so whether she was specifically talking about equity in hurricane relief or other public policy, I wonder what your thought process is on this distinction that we're seeing increasingly between equality and that sort of fundamental value that I think almost all Americans share, and then equity, which is a different spin on it, which puts discrimination and righting past wrongs into play. Uh, sure. Um, I mean, equity is just the, the latest uh... Uh, sort of Orwellian device uh, to justify racial preferences. Um, and that her constituency and the, and the left in America still very much believe in what liberalism wants to do is practice social engineering of one kind or another. Here she has to do with hurricane aid. Uh, it has Then we were again with the, the colleges and universities and so forth. Uh, that's that's what that's what she she hopes that that equity will sort of somehow it's, it's a word that sounds uh, equal and sounds as though everything is but it's really nothing more than a rationalization for social engineering. Uh, we can discriminate against Asian students uh, and in favor of black students. Uh, her, her, her constituency, uh, and and we can play around and engineer and use and say that we're doing something good. It's again this Orwellian idea of saying the the good, naming the good, uh, to cover over, in, in this case, what I consider nothing less than evil. 
because once again, you you have this view of, of minorities, people of color, as helpless and weak and forever weak and who will always need the goodwill of, of uh, the caring progressives uh, in order to, to, to survive. Uh, so equity is, is really, again, the, the solidification of, of inequality, uh, by my lights at any rate. Shelby Steele is my guest, a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. We've got a break. We'll take it real quick. When we come back, I want to play another soundbite for you, Shelby, and get your reaction. That's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson, broadcasting from the Hoover Institution, and with us is Shelby Steele, a senior fellow here at Hoover. Finally, here's a soundbite I'd like to play for you. This is from Congresswoman Cori Bush, Democrat from Missouri, a member of the squad. She recently appeared at an event, and she was lamenting that Republicans were trying to bar the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And she tries to argue, number one, that this is bad and this shouldn't happen. Number two, that the teaching of CRT in schools also is a myth that isn't happening. Here's what she said in Cut 28. There was a coordinated effort around the state against critical race theory. School board meetings, just it was violence against CRT and they named it and and even in our state this this political party they said our number one thing to work on for this next year is bringing down critical race theory now i don't know of any schools in, in uh, any elementary or middle schools or high schools in my in my community that that teach critical race theory but if you what you're really saying What you're really saying is you want to make sure that black history is not taught. I would say, first of all, that it has been documented that CRT and its various tentacles have been taught and injected into curricula at the elementary, middle and high school level across the country. That's why it's a controversy. People didn't dream it up out of whole cloth. It's something that's a reality and people are noticing and pushing back. But what struck me, especially about that clip, Shelby, was Congresswoman Bush explicitly conflating the teaching of CRT and black history and saying, if you don't want CRT, what you really are about, your ulterior motive is trying to block black history from being taught to students. What do you make of that conflation that we just heard? Well, uh, it's terrible. Um, and, um, you know, again, it's it's uh, straight out of the I hate to be keep quoting George Ola, but, but he's, he's on the money here where, you know, you, you, you name something, you give something a very nice sounding polished uh, name that uh, reflects uh, the good in, in human affairs. Uh, when actually what you're doing, critical race theory is ridiculous. It is. Uh, I was around in the days when it first came out in the early seventies. I knew, uh, some of the people involved in it. We thought back then this would never really get anywhere. So it, it shocks me to see <laughs> it, it. And it's, it saddens me again because it it is uh, uh, it's a, just a power move. It's just a naked power move where you say, uh, if you're against me, you you are uh, you're you're racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, how far can you can you take that? Apparently. 
that method of, of, of power, of calling people racist, works well. It, it is, in many ways, the, the most, uh, what, uh, the deepest, truest source of, the, of power for in today's left comes from this kind of uh, duplicitous racism uh, that basically rationalizes propaganda, social engineering, and so forth. Uh, and we just, uh, I, 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 the, the, the moms movement, the school board movement that is sort of unfolding. I, I, I just cheer them on in every way I possibly can. Um, what we in America have got to understand is that race is always, always, always poison. And I don't mean that just as a, as a metaphor. It literally is poison. It contaminates the human spirit. It demeans our, our souls. Uh, it, it undermines human relations. Uh, in, in every arena it exists in. Uh, it took us four centuries, for goodness sakes, to, to make it against the law to racially discriminate in America. Now we want to go back to racial discrimination again? Uh, history is not going to shine a, a, a positive light on on this era where we tinker with this with evil in this way, with poison in this way, and of course the people we claim to be helping get worse and worse and worse. Blacks are farther behind whites today than they were in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Uh, across the board, we get worse and worse. Because we, we keep thinking that if we get rid of racism, uh, we, we're, we're, all our problems will, will be solved. The problem is we've already gotten rid of racism. Racism is no longer a problem. It no longer stops people from living the life they want to live. Uh, there are opportunities available for everybody, an amazing array. And I'm somebody who grew up in the, in the days of segregation when there were no opportunities. I know the difference. We need to grab these things, develop ourselves, and compete in the modern world. Uh, there's no other way to go. And, and I hope we get through this period, uh, this sort of sidetrack. I hope we get through it quickly. Well, it's a lot of provocative stuff there, and he's always a provocative thinker. Shelby Steele, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, best-selling author. His bestseller was White Guilt. And he's a renowned scholar, and we are very pleased to have him here on The Guy Benson Show. Shelby, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead, Josh Krasauer on the latest on the midterms. That's next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our happy hour. Here on this Tuesday, I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. 5 to 6, our final hour is the happy hour, which is brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink. Just fantastic stuff. Very delicious and refreshing. 
It is alcoholic, so 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com to find out more, including where it's sold near you, as they've really expanded in a huge way over the last year in particular across the country. TheLongDrink.com. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of content there, including the free podcast every day on demand. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram for some bonus content there as well. We are broadcasting all week from the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California, on the campus of Stanford University. Beautiful out here, and we're very grateful to have all of you along. Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, as always, welcome back. Guy, great to be back on the show. And you're in the D.C. studio, I understand, where I usually sit, so that's great. Yeah, no, great to be on set, doing TV, doing radio, and talking politics with yep. about a month ago to the midterms. Yeah, this is like the busiest time for you in an election year, in this important final stretch, inside five weeks to go. Let's start big picture. You and I talked about the vibe shift that was not great for Republicans over the summer. Democrats were feeling a little bit more excited or at least less pessimistic, I should say, about the overall picture, maybe brightening a bit for them, darkening for the Republicans. You commented on it. I read some of your analysis. We talked about it here. It wasn't something that I loved to see, but I think it was something that was happening to some extent, for sure, right in front of our eyes. We have now recently been talking about a vibe shift back in the other direction toward the Republicans, I would say, in favor of the fundamentals of this cycle that we always knew would be in place There's a new Monmouth poll out this week that seems to underscore what we're talking about with the Republicans now up three points in that poll on the generic ballot nationally. They were down seven in that same poll in August. And look, maybe they weren't down seven really in August. I'm a little skeptical of a 10-point swing in one month. But let's say they were down four or three in August. Now they're up two or three in September heading into October. That seems significant and reflective of this broader pattern and trend that you've been seeing on the ground, seeing in polling, hearing about in your conversations with campaigns, and then writing and talking about. Yes? That's right, Guy. And when you look under the hood of that Monmouth poll, inflation by far is the top issue. The number two issue is crime, which is a huge factor, in some, specifically in some of these pivotal Senate races, namely the Wisconsin Senate race and the Pennsylvania Senate race. And all the way back at number seven right now in the Monmouth poll is the issue of abortion. And I know we've talked about abortion being an issue that definitely is rallying Democratic voters to the polls. But if you look at the Monmouth numbers, it is really limited to base energizing for the Democrats and independents, certainly not, certainly Republicans are not voting on the abortion issue, whereas crime has all of a sudden dominated as, as a topic in many of these very, very competitive Senate governor's races and, and, and also House races. Yep. And we talked yesterday on this show at some length with Andy McCarthy about the spin that we're hearing now from D.A. Krasner in Philadelphia, Governor Newsom here in California, that really crime is actually a Republican problem. And it's MAGA cities and Trump cities where it's a problem. And it's just the Republicans lying, blaming this on the Democrats. And as I said to Andy, the data doesn't bear that out. And politically, I just think it doesn't fly with people. Voters don't believe that intuitively. No, I mean, you look at the data, just look at the crime data in some of the the cities that have seen significant spikes in violent crime over the last few years. A lot of those same cities have have very lenient bail policies. They've uh, allowed uh, misdemeanors, felonies not to be prosecuted to the fullest possible degree. 
and voters are reacting and they become issues in some of these statewide campaigns. You know, and, and look, I think Dem- the Democratic playbook has been pretty, pretty smart lately in that they've encouraged many of their, their candidates to run on funding more money to, to the police. And they're trying to inoculate themselves from, from some of these vulnerabilities. But there are races where you have Democratic candidates who have been on record on yes. video recently yep. calling for defunding the police in the case of a big New Mexico House race. In the case of John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, he was the head of the Board of Pardons, and he encouraged uh, criminals who were serving life sentences, who served their time and uh, were, were on good behavior, to get out early. And that's a political issue in the Pennsylvania race. In Wisconsin, you know, this was something I wrote about at the time and I was befuddled by, but Mandela Barnes, the Wisconsin Senate candidate, called for getting rid of bail a month after this horrific Christmas attack in Waukesha, Wisconsin, when a criminal who was out on only $5,000 bail for domestic abuse ran over and killed six uh, adults, kids, and injured countless others. This is basic politics, politics 101. Democrats may be able to defend themselves in some races, but when you have candidates that are well to the left of where your average voter is on the issue of crime, that is a very, very big problem. Yeah, especially at the top. In the top two issues, as you said in this poll, inflation number one by a lot, then crime. I mean, if if that's how it plays out in November, it's going to be probably a very difficult time for Democrats, broadly speaking, because they are trailing on those issues in virtually every poll that I've seen, often substantially. Now, Josh, you mentioned a few places where the news has gotten, I would say, clearly better and brighter for Republicans in some of these important Senate races. Before we get to the good news for Republicans, let's talk briefly about what's happening In Georgia, and I talked about this earlier as well, this bombshell dropping on Herschel Walker and this allegation that he paid for his girlfriend's abortion 13 years ago, he's adamantly denying it. Daily Beast has a story where they say they've seen receipts, and he did send her several hundred dollars around the time and a sympathy card of some sort. I'm not really sure exactly how this plays out. I know how the Democrats and the media would like it to play out. I know that they're going to be some conservatives who might look at this and not believe him, and I'm skeptical, certainly, of his denials, and say, well, if he's going to be the pro-life candidate and this is what he did in his life and he's not going to tell the truth about it, if that's what they conclude, uh, maybe I'm not going to crawl over broken glass to vote for this guy, and that would benefit potentially Warnock and the Democrats. I'm also, as I said, a little bit skeptical of the idea that a big October surprise necessarily is decisive in a race because there have been multiple times in recent years on both sides of the aisle where something came out relatively late. And in my mind, I was convinced, okay, this race is probably over now. This is devastating. And then it just didn't play out that way. So I think this is obviously not a good cycle, not a good week for Herschel Walker. I mean, I don't know how you paint it any other way for any number of reasons. I'm also not sure that this is a race ender. It might end up being one. It might end up not. I wonder what your early read is on this controversy. TBD. <laughs> Look, this is if, if this if these revelations occurred ten years ago, they would be career political career ending for Herschel Walker. These this is these are devastating atta- allegations, at least in the Daily Beast story, which but had anonymous sources. Now there was some documentation that they had, but but that that alone might not have been very damaging when you combine it though with uh, Herschel Walker's son yes. Christian, who is a conservative, uh, a TikTok influencer who is apparently well-known. I, I, I'm not on TikTok guy, so I don't know all of his videos and posts, but he's someone apparently who has a little bit of a following among conservatives. And he has gone online with a string in the last 24 hours of attacks against his father, 
criticisms of his dad covering up domestic abuse, it's pretty ugly. It is. And that is what I think Republicans are, are, are panicked about. Maybe the, they could say the media didn't get the story right or the Daily Beast, I should say, didn't get the story right if that was it. But when you have your son who was a – you know, until like – this week was a, a, a outspoken advocate for your campaign, and all of a sudden he's going off on social media about how horrible you are. Boy, that that is this is just a, a 50-50 state. Georgia is Democrats won a close races in those runoffs, and I, there's a sense of deja vu that those suburban voters that that you know are going to vote for Governor Kemp in, in large numbers in the governor's race may find Walker just you know a little bit problematic to support in, in a very battle very competitive battleground state. Yeah, I mean we'll see. Uh, not not helpful. That is definitely true, and there's ugliness here. I talked to a friend earlier about this, very familiar with Georgia politics, who said there's an ick factor to this, and if it ends up being an extremely tight race, that could be enough. People staying home, people ticket-splitting, people leaving that one blank, maybe voting for Kemp and walking away. If there's enough of that effect in a coin flip race, that could be enough to reelect Raphael Warnock. Or not, we'll see. On the other side of this, it's interesting, Josh, and I really want to get your analysis on this. We are starting to see a lot of smart people. I think you were ahead of the curve, as is often the case on this, but a lot of smart people saying, okay, this Pennsylvania Senate race is real now. You know, This idea that Fetterman was walking away with it, up double digits, that's gone. And now folks are calling it perhaps the most competitive Senate race in the country. Oz is surging. He's raising money. He's attacking Fetterman rightly, I think, on crime and all this other stuff. Now, the polling still shows fairly consistently Fetterman ahead by two to five points. And yet it seems like a lot of the analysts don't really believe that. They're they're calling this racer thin. Cook just made this a toss-up race from Lean Democrat. What do you make of that in terms of the polling still showing Fetterman ahead by what some might say is a somewhat comfortable margin, but seemingly people who are paying attention to the race carefully dismissing that polling at this point and saying this is anybody's game. Why that gap? So what the polling shows, Guy, is that a lot of voters in Pennsylvania have reservations about both candidates. There are a lot of people on the fence that are, that are waiting to make up their mind in Pennsylvania. The numbers also show that those undecided voters are very sour on, on President Biden, and they lean a little bit more to the right. So, look, I, the reason why, why I see it as a very close race, and I don't see either candidate having a, a decided advantage, but I do see, as Cook just changed the rating today, as a, as a pure toss-up, because I think a lot of Republicans come home to Oz, where they may not be 100 percent behind him right now. And those swing voters that are watching the ads on crime and, and learning a little bit more about Fetterman's positions on criminal justice issues – those voters are, you know, they, they were once looking at Fetterman a lot more favorably, and, and, and their view of him has gotten gotten quite a bit sour in the last few weeks. So the trend, you can look at the numbers, you can look at the top lines, or you can look at the trend lines. And the trend lines have shown that Oz has really put a dent into Fetterman's image, and he's gained, it's really Fetterman losing ground. Oz is gaining a little ground as well. But if you follow, if you extrapolate that to, to the election, you can see how this becomes a 50-50 race. I, you know, if Georgia falls out of the out of the opportunities for Republicans, and that may not be the case, but if Georgia is not as good of an opportunity, the, the Senate majority may be decided on whether Dr. Oz can win in Pennsylvania. So that, yeah. this race is, is, is hugely important when it comes to the, the political math. Yeah, absolutely. Can he complete this comeback? There's no doubt that the momentum is on his side and that he's gaining. And Fetterman also, the thing is, Josh, Fetterman isn't really capable of defending himself properly. 
He struggles to speak. He doesn't really give a lot of interviews, certainly not hostile ones. He's been very reluctant to debate. His social media team is run by, it seems like, 20-somethings who are very aggressive and very snarky, but out there giving these speeches, Fetterman's kind of just mocking Oz and saying he's from New Jersey and crudite and sort of the same lines. And it feels like they're not really adjusting to the changing ground, the shifting ground beneath them very well. That, that's very well put. That, that They had a playbook in July that they haven't updated for, for October, right? Like that was a great – the social media attention when Oz was at the supermarket talking about crudite and – you know, the, 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 the Snooky Jersey Shore video they did, that was good for, like, the preseason. But now we're, we're in the home stretch, and you would expect Fetterman to be talking and defending his record a little bit more aggressively on some of the, of the issues. But he can't. Do, do a, well, look, I think all, in person he's limited because of, of the stroke and because he doesn't do a whole lot of media. I don't think he does any, actually, media avails, talk to, talking to the press, except in certain select situations. Uh, but, but you know, they've been airing ads. The first round of ads when it came to crime that they were airing were defending his, his record as, as mayor of Braddock fighting, fighting crime. But now they've kind of doubled down on his more progressive views on sentencing reform, decarceration, and so on. And, look, that's going to be that, – that's a very interesting play because that is not where – uh, if you look at the polling, at least, that's not where a lot of swing voters are. Yeah, and, and when I say he can't, issue. when I say he can't defend himself, I'm not just saying that he struggles to speak because of the after effects of his stroke, although I think this is part of it. It's also that the record is what it is. And so and, and he's, he's on tape, on video, saying a lot of this stuff, which is relatively low-hanging fodder for the Oz campaign. And they're definitely running with it, and they're making some gains. Huge race in Pennsylvania, as we've been saying. Josh Krasauer, stand by. I want to get to a few more states next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Josh Krasauer, my guest. Finally, Josh, Nevada continues to look maybe not in the bag for the Republicans. I think they should be very hesitant to use a term like that, given their record in that state recently where they've struggled. But... Statewide polling, independent polling. I know you highlighted one that just came out this week, a survey that had the Republicans leading in every single statewide race where there could be a sweep, including at the Senate level, including at the gubernatorial level. It does really feel like Nevada's the type of place that the Democrats could be in trouble. And it looks increasingly like the Republicans need that Senate seat at this point, to have a chance to win the majority. And Adam Laxalt appears to be doing at least what he needs to do, running a strong campaign, to do his best to make that happen. There hasn't been a public poll guy since September in Nevada that shows the the incumbent senator, Cortez Masto, winning. That that traditionally is a really big warning sign for for, for the party in power, for, for the incumbent. Uh, and you can look at the fundamentals in Nevada. Nevada is a very unique state in that it's it's voted Democratic in a whole lot of presidential elections, but it's by a narrow margin. Mm-hmm. And the two biggest groups that make up the, the Nevada electorate, Hispanic voters and working class voters around Vegas, they have taken it, it on the chin economically. Gas prices are – I think Nevada has the second highest gas prices in the country. Last I checked, the casinos have, have taken a, a little bit of a hit, the people who work at the casinos, and more importantly, because of, of the COVID situation. Uh, th- it, there's a malaise in Nevada that may be bigger than in a lot of other battleground states. And Hispanic voters are either staying home. Some of them are actually voting Republican. For the first time, working class voters are moving towards the Republican Party, as we've seen in a lot of states across the country. 
And that 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 confluence right there is making it a perfect storm for for Republicans across the board. If you talk to the governor, the, the, the Republicans running governor's races, they think Nevada is their best pickup opportunity to win a Democratic governorship. And increasingly, Nevada looks like the best opportunity for Republicans to win a Senate seat here in the midterms. All right. Very quickly, Josh, I want to ask you this. Down at the next tier of Senate races would be Arizona. Then just beneath that, I would say Colorado, Washington, New Hampshire. Of those four, which one are you most interested in, in terms of uh, an opportunity for the Republicans maybe to pull it off? I I I would say New Hampshire and Colorado. Probably more Colorado because Republicans have a a very good candidate, a more moderate candidate in uh, businessman Joe O'Day. Uh, He is running against Michael Bennett. Look, Colorado is a a Democratic-friendly state. It voted for Biden by 13 points. It would take a pretty big wave for O'Day to win, even though he's run a pretty strong campaign. New Hampshire's a very interesting state in that Republicans didn't get the candidate they wanted, the more moderate candidate. Bolduc, you know, he's not run the sharpest of campaigns so far. Uh, but Hassan does have some soft numbers in the state, and there are Democrats I talk to that are still a little bit worried about the, the polling in New Hampshire. So if there's a surprise on election night, and maybe it's a it's an early closing time in New Hampshire, so it'll be worth looking at those those numbers early on in election night. If there's a surprise, I'd, I'd pay close attention to New Hampshire because Republicans okay. don't have great candidates, but if it's a wave, they could get swept in. Yeah, how big could that wave get? And then that has implications all across the map. We'll be watching and talking about it in these next five-plus weeks or four-plus weeks at this point. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios, Fox News radio political analyst, joining us from our D.C. studios. Josh, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. And we'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Earlier today in the program, we welcome back to the show Dr. Abbas Milani, who's a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and co-director of its Iran Democracy Project, which obviously is very relevant to the news cycle right now. He's also the director of Iranian studies at Stanford as well. Here's part of that conversation with Dr. Milani. Before I ask another question about this, I just want to do a quick detour because you just mentioned Hamani, who's the supreme leader. He's, you know, the, the head guy in charge of Iran, the top cleric, Ayatollah, whatever you want to call him. There have been rumors now percolating for a while that he's very ill. And what have you heard from your sources in Iran and what could the significance be surrounding that? If, if he were to die sometime in the near future, is it just the next evil person up, nothing really changes. What are your thoughts there? He's clearly ill, uh, and uh, when he gave his talk, you could see that his face is very puffed up. Uh, The earlier talk he gave was also very weak. He clearly was weak. Uh, So he is sick, but uh, clerics in Iran tend to live longer lives than the average uh, because they live a life of comfort. They haven't done a day's work. So their average life expectancy of a cleric with the kind of cancer that Khomeini has is longer than normal human beings. Uh, But uh, Khomeini has been very much trying to see whether he can get his son, a a guy named Mushtaba, who has never held office and has been a de facto chief of staff and has been in charge of the most brutal elements of Iran's intelligence agencies. Mm to succeed him. There's pushback societally, and there's pushback from the clergy who say this young ki- kid is not good enough to become the su- successor. 
I have serious doubts that this regime can last. Uh, not in the short term. They still have the brutality to maybe contain this. But they have no problems to Iran's fundamental problem. They have no solution to the rising movement of discontent fueled by women, fueled by uh, young people who are very globally savvy, who simply want to live normal lives. You can't have a medieval regime of septuagenarian men run a society as vibrant, as youthful, as educated as Iran. That's simple. Unless you're willing to kill a lot of people, which they are. And that's why I think what we're seeing is so inspiring. I mean, every time the people rise up, the Green Revolution, you think about that, what, more than a decade ago now, and there have been a few other sporadic moments where people have risen up, then they get brutally put down, then they try again, which is incredible. I know we, in this, in the West, sort of in a sort of decadent way, we prattle on endlessly about courage and truth to power. This is actually a real vivid example of that under very trying circumstances. If you would just explain, I I think a lot of people in the audience are sophisticated enough to understand that if a woman takes off her her head covering in Iran and shows her hair or cuts her hair and, and parades out in public this way, she is taking a risk. She is doing something that could put herself at, at real risk. But if you could just really explain what that act of defiance really means in the context of this regime, I think that would be worthwhile. That's a brilliant question. That act of defiance means going against the word of Khamenei, who is on record, saying that hijab is God's law and we are going to enforce it. And the head of Iranian judiciary just three weeks ago saying if you take off your uh, hijab, you are, the concept you use is muharib, in other words, fighting against God. The punishment for that is death. That's how they threaten people in Iran. That's how brilliant and defiant Iranian women have been. They have fought for literally 40 years against this brutality, against this apartheid. And but not this openly, right? This is absolutely, brazen. Absolutely. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have never seen anything like this in the sense of people coming and uh, starting a bonfire and yeah. throwing. I have seen people, uh, when I taught in Iran till 87, you could see this a woman fighting for every inch of a hair they could show. But this level of defiance, absolutely not. There's one other aspect of this movement that I think has uh, received almost no attention, much to my surprise, in the Western media. Last Saturday, in 150 different cities around the world, hundreds of thousands of Iranians came out to show solidarity with the movement inside Iran and to say no to this regime. My full interview with Dr. Abbas Milani on Iran and what's happening in his home country right now, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, part of our free podcast every day, the whole show, free of charge, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, we'll lighten things up in the home stretch. Producer Christine attended her first ever football game last night with yours truly. It was quite an adventure. We had a time. And we will tell you all about it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
home stretch on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. So on yesterday's show, in this segment, we revealed to the audience that because we're here out at Stanford, the Hoover Institution, not too far from where we're hanging out and doing the show, is the stadium of the San Francisco 49ers. And they were hosting Monday Night Football last night against the defending Super Bowl champs, the L.A. Rams. They were in town. And Christine flagged this for me as she is now a football fan. She has a newfound love for the game, for the sport. She's never been to a game, at least hadn't been to a game. And she said, what about Monday Night Football? What about trying to find tickets? So we did. We went on StubHub. We haggled back and forth between us on ticket prices and location and all this stuff. Then we hopped in the Uber a little bit after the show was over and headed out to Levi Stadium. And we saw a win for the home team. The 49ers won convincingly. And there were some pretty exciting, explosive plays over the course of the game. A big touchdown run, an amazing catch and run for a long touchdown, and then a pick six that really sealed it. And people were getting loud. People were getting rowdy. I thought we had a pretty good vantage point. We were in the 300 level, so not all the way up in the 400 level, but not really that close. But you could see the whole field. And I think that's important for someone just learning the game. If you're too low or sort of in the end zone, it's hard maybe to really understand what's happening and try to figure out, okay, there's no yellow line on the field like there is on TV. Where's the first down marker? Where do they have to get to to extend the drive? I think where we were sitting allowed that perspective very well for Christine. She asked a lot of questions. I did my best to answer them throughout the game. I will say, Christine, overall, it seemed like you had an awesome time. Like, it seems like your fandom of the NFL has not been diminished, but intensified, solidified now. I truly want to find a team so I can just, like, feel at home. Because I felt at home at the stadium. Right? Didn't I kept saying that? I kept saying, like, I didn't want the game to end. You were getting getting mad. I was getting mad. Like, why is it going so fast? It was going way too fast for me, which is very, very ironic because my whole life has been spent with Bobby asking, when is the game going to be over? When can I change the channel? When are we leaving? What? Come on. Do we really have to watch this? It's taking forever. And yesterday, I didn't want to leave. And you were telling anyone who would listen Mm -hmm. that it was your first game. Everybody. Everybody. And people were like, oh, wow, cool. They were pretty inviting. You're still in the market for a favorite team, but it was funny. You were like, I'm so into this. I said, imagine if you actually cared about the team, and it was your team, and you got to know the players, and you were really rooting for them. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'd be so sad if they lost. I'm like, yeah, welcome to sports fandom. Well, that's the only thing. Like, if I'm really into it, I just really want the gear, too. Like, everybody just looks so happy there. Like, they just felt like a part of a community. What happens if my team loses? That's going to happen. Ugh. Yeah, so... Choose wisely, yeah. but don't be a bandwagon or just <laughs> think about it. But the game last night, what was your favorite part, would you say? And were you surprised by anything going to a game in person? I think I was just surprised by the height of where we were <laughs> and my fear. I didn't think I was going to have that big of a fear. Like you saw, I was terrified. I kept thinking I was going to fall. Yeah. Christine <laughs> refused to stand up. Like, even for big plays, because she was worried if she stood up, she would fall. Yep. Like, down, I guess, what, off the upper deck? Well, we saw a man sitting next to me fall, well, so... he I mean, <laughs> he had been perhaps 
overserved, I would say. I'm not judging that. And he was fine. Like, yeah, he, he didn't, seemed He didn't unfazed. get hurt. He went down, but he sort of caught himself. It, and then you saw that, and you were like, well, now I, I can barely move. So you were frozen, basically, to your seat. Although at the pick six, you couldn't help but stand up. And then I was holding on to the chair. Yes, you literally held the back of yep. your chair. Oh, so that was <laughs> that was interesting. Another thing I'll just note real quick, in the men's room, I don't know why this is stuck with me. In the men's room at the urinal, they had warning placards at the urinal saying that the water was recycled and not to drink it. Mm. I was like, who needs to be told not to drink this particular water? Apparently, some sports fans in San Francisco. I posted that. Like, you wouldn't believe me if I didn't post a photo, and I did last night on my personal Twitter, at Guy P. Benson. But, yeah, you, you were into it. When there was a touchdown, they do the loud foghorn at the stadium. They come out with the flags, and they wave the flags. And the cheerleaders. You love the cheerleaders. I, I really feel like I could be a part of them. Like, mm. I, I don't know. The dances seem simple. Mm. I think I could do it. No, I, I think that they're less simple than it would seem. Huh. And also, I feel like maybe the, the age range there is a little <sighs> bit different. I have to say, do you remember what I said to you halfway through the game? I looked at you and I go, Guy, I have another question. Yes, Christine. What does the 49ers mean? Yes. I had no clue. Yeah, so I explained the origin of the of the team's name, mm-hmm. which is more about history than sports. Right? I like it. And the gold rush. You also, you were asking oh boy. a good number of, I think, fair football questions. You are really struggling with the two-point conversion concept. I, I still don't understand it. Even, even the last time I explained it, yeah, you seemed it to just, get it. Oh, you something were... is blocking me. You know when sometimes I have those intros and they block me, and I still write the same thing over and over? Yes. I feel like the two-point conversion is like my block. I yeah. Just, I well, because you always call the extra point a field goal, so that's the first thing I correct. Right. And and like literally, if you, you were just about to call that a field goal again, because uh-huh. it's like that's in your head. Mm-hmm. No, it's an extra point for one, but you can go for two where you basically have to score another touchdown from the two-and-a-half-yard line. And you get two points instead of one to make it an eight-point touchdown rather than a seven-point touchdown. Anyway, just it's always teaching, always learning. The process is ongoing. You did ask me at one point during, I believe, the third or fourth quarter, oh, no. something happened on mm-hmm. the field, and you asked me, was that a line drive? <laughs> They were going through the middle. Remember, I always talk about how I don't like when they go through the middle. Yes. I want them to go. And I said, they went through the middle and they were successful. And I said, was that a line drive? Yeah. And I, I, I said it with certainty. Yeah, you were pretty proud of yourself with that sports <laughs> reference. And I had to explain that that's a baseball term. Yeah. Now, there is a football application actually to line drive, which is generally to describe a punt. That is not – that doesn't have much arc to it, but that's not what you were talking about at all. You had line drive in your head. It's a baseball term about yeah. a ball, a batted we're ball. We're not at baseball yet. We're still working on football. Just football. Let's get there. But there was one other thing I remember. Um, I don't like at the third down when everybody starts yelling. Mm-hmm. And so the poor quarterback, like from the other team, he what if he wanted to call an audible, which I just learned about? Mm-hmm. It's very hard for him to that's tell his point. friends – where we're going to go. That's the point of the home game, to have a home field advantage. You've heard about that. Yes. Where your fans are quiet when you're trying to communicate, and they're rowdy and trying to disrupt the visiting team. That's the whole point. Yeah, I feel like the boys, like, by us, it's a little rude. It's just, you know, like, let them. No, it's, it's, it's the job of the fans to do that. Oh. 
Um, I'm not getting paid to do that. I'm paying to watch. But um, Stafford had a bad night. Yeah, he, he did was, not. Well, they didn't score a touchdown on the L.A. side of things. No, it was all of those goals. The field, field goals. goals. Three points, mm-hmm. yes. So I'll also just say after the game, we were <laughs> oh, leaving. No. So the adventure had only begun. Oh, just began. So we left the stadium. We timed it perfectly, we thought, at Boy, least. Boy, did we. And we were heading out through the parking lot to go try to find our Uber, and there were people selling, like, sausages and hot dogs in these little carts. And I will say, they smelled amazing, and Delicious. I really wanted one. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, let's just get to the car. And, Christine, you seem to believe that these were just people out of the goodness of their heart handing out free food. You're like, oh, they're giving us food. I thought it was I like said, a yeah, party. I said, yeah, for money. I thought it was a parting gift. I didn't see anybody charging, so I'm like, that is so sweet. Like, they just wait here and give you, like, a little sausage sandwich or something to, on your way. <laughs> no, no. But what we ended up doing was eating pizza oh and drinking beer at a strip mall <laughs> as we desperately waited for Ubers because it was an absolute mess. I think between the two of us, we had 12 Ubers cancel. At least. At least. Like, they would accept us, and they'd be... 16 minutes away, and then 14 minutes away, and then cancel. One got all the way to one minute away and canceled. And hung up on me because mm-hmm. I was calling each of them. I actually started to think, is her calling hurting us? <laughs> Why did you say anything? And I was going to. I was going to say, you know what? Maybe let me do the talking here. <laughs> that wasn't very nice, was I? You were just, you were just a little bit frantic. Hmm. And so we finally figured it out, and we just had a beer and some pizza, and we got – and because it's West Coast time – we got it back. It would have felt like 1 a.m. on the East Coast, but it wasn't even 10. It was like 9.30 or something. Well, we here, didn't so even fine. actually technically get an Uber through the app. Remember, I had to walk through the parking lot and ask the man. Yeah, you just <laughs> sort of talked our way into that. I had to Venmo him. He wouldn't yeah. even trust me. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, just pay me directly. Yeah. Uh, but it worked out overall a good experience. One of the best nights ever. I was texting Bobby when I got back. I forgot how late it was. I'm like, I want to go to a game. And I was looking up guests who were playing the Giants on November 20th. Who? The Lions. So Detroit versus New York. My Lions. Oh. So Bobby was a little. You're going to regret that. But you should go to a Giants game. I know you want to bring Megan. I recommend a day game. Yeah, not too high. I don't want to fall. Yeah, you're not going to fall. But you you can, you know, pick your time wisely. Pick your seats wisely. The later games tend to get a little bit rowdier with the drinking. Right. Um, one more thing. Two more things. What is going on with people at the pizza place dipping their pizza into ranch dressing? Yeah, some people like that. I think sometimes it's fine, especially if the pizza's eh, which I would say it was. Um, that's a thing. It's very confusing. Almost everybody. Yeah, you were you were really noticing that. I didn't that. even get the pizza. Yeah, I know. Just went to the beer. Shocker. And you said there was a second thing? Were you surprised that I didn't really drink that much at the game? You had a few beers. Two. That's yeah. Nothing. Yeah, I think Child's you were, play. Well, you're worried about falling. <laughs> All right, so that's probably why. <laughs> I'm surprised you weren't going to bring up Tom Brady and the alleged divorce. I, I need to find more facts, but you and I had a debate yesterday, and you still don't think I'm right on this, but Giselle's going to be fine. She makes well, more money than Tommy. I'm more worried about the kids. They have young kids. Oh, if they're right. Divorced. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking right. about. Sure. You're thinking about the money. Yeah. They all have hundreds of millions of dollars. They're going to be yeah. fine financially. Another conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. But welcome to sports. Like Unbelievable. I lo- Dan, I can't wait to get back there. We're going to talk so much football. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Congratulations, Dan. 
Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. We're enjoying our time out here, obviously. Looking forward to tomorrow's show. Dr. Condoleezza Rice will be one of our guests. We cannot wait for that. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.